welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And as with all research papers we discuss, we do have to put in the caveat that you make sure you get some professional advice before implementing any of the topics we cover. We're going to start the podcast today with a little update on last week's research that Nancy has for us. Yeah, I realized when I listened to last week's episode that I said attempts versus trials. So I was talking about a paper written by Hemmings et al. And it was per, see, it was perseverative responding and the etiology of equine oral stereotypy. And um, I had said 15 attempts at the horse trying to get the food reward. What it actually was, was 15 seconds for each trial. Now, the horse that had the crib biting would, um, they put a 15 second limit on the trial and it was a box with a button and a buzzer would sound and a yellow light would flash and that alerted the horse that the food reward was available and they had to push the button to get it. Well, on the crib biting horses and the control group, which were non-crib biting, to learn that behavior, it was pretty equal. So, um, you know, there really was no significant difference in the trials it took to ingrain that. In fact, it was uh, 3.5 trials for the cribbing horses, 4.1 for the non-cribbing. So too close, it's really insignificant. But when it came time to extinguish or have that behavior come to extinction. It was a little bit different with that 15 second window. It was nine trials for the crib biting versus just two trials for the control group. Now, when you took away that 15 second window and um, they would reintroduce a new trial every minute, it took 11.5 of the crib biting horses to 4.6. So that's when they went beyond that 15 seconds and initiated a new trial at the one minute mark. So um, the real eye-opening part of this study was the number of button presses to total extinction. So this was, you know, without that 15 second you know, limit, it was 46 button presses to 14 for the control group. So I thought it was important for me to correct what I said last week, because if you have a crib biting horse, um, stall walking, a weaver, uh, any horse that's considered to have a stereotypical behavior, I think this tells us that sometimes if we want to um, reteach them or retrain them, it might take a little bit more time than what a control group horse or one that does not show stereotypical behavior. I think that 
like the determination 46 presses like that's incredible and I wonder if that I'm sure there's research we could look into on this but would that make you know horses that have those stereotypes more willing to actually learn you know things that we're trying to train them if there is that reward like would they learn it quicker and would they retain that training longer I know they learned it at the same level but do you think they'd persevere at it I think it's much harder to when they're looking for a reward a release anything that would be positive kind of um, I think they're so ingrained on that, that it's real easy as a trainer or owner to get in a tug of war with these horses. And we have to remember, you know, in this study in particular, kind of talks, you know, about that, um, their persevering attitude, they're honed in on that reward. And so anyway, I just wanted to clarify that, that, you know, I was so aggravated with myself for saying it. <laughs> so I wanted, I went back and I really studied the research and I wanted to clarify it for everyone that they did have a 15 second window for each trial and then they would open it up and then repeat the trial every minute for up to 10 times. So it was really interesting when I got to the actual total amount of button pushes, 46 versus 14, that tells us these um, crib biters might not give up easily. Fab. Well, thank you for um, updating us on that, because that does, it makes a lot of sense now when, you know, you just look at it from that point. I just, I'm fascinated by the determination that they have. Yeah. Um, this week, we were going to look at a research paper by L. Bulmer et al. And it's on high starch diets, alter equine, fecal microbiota, and increase behavioral reactivity. Um, so essentially, this study was looking to investigate behavioral differences in groups of naive ponies that have been fed diets high in starch or high in fiber. And then they basically used this RNA gene sequencing of the fecal samples to determine if there are any alterations to the fecal microbiota associated with the two diets. They then finally explored the link between diet, gut microbiota, and behavior. Um, and this paper was chosen by Nancy this week. And this came to you from was it from last week you were saying if you had to retrain horses again how you would go about it yes i've got a phone call from an owner a thoroughbred owner that i used to gallop his horses 18 years ago on the track and one of the mares that i used to gallop had a son and the son is now in training he's a gelding and the owner heard me say that if i ever trained thoroughbreds again, the one thing I regret would be that I never really trained them according to temperament. I mean, you do certain things, um, you know, maybe off the cuff, but you don't really delve into temperament training. So he asked me what I would do with this 
young gelding who is wound too tight. And so I asked him a few questions, um, told him I suspected probably he was getting more calories than what he's expending because he had had a tendon injury. They did stem cell treatment on it and they were protecting his injury prone. You know, he's just got, he's his own worst enemy and um, they're only sending him to train four days a week. Well, then I asked, well, what does he look like? What's his body condition? And they said he looks like a stallion, full-bodied and, you know, looks absolutely gorgeous. And I thought to myself, well, a nervous horse will tend to lose weight because when you're nervous, you're burning nervous energy. And so if he still looks really filled out and muscled and looks like a stud horse, then um, he's probably getting too many calories for what, you know, his energy expenditure is. And that's making him paw circle in the stall and just be a total handful. And, you know, he's worried about another injury. So I was looking for research that would be evidence-based for me to be able to send him to show him this could be a possibility. We don't know for sure, but it's easy to just back off on the high starch and sugar and increase the forage. And anyway, that's how we came across this topic. And this is, I think this is such a hot topic in humans at the moment. Like people really are being a lot more mindful about what they're putting into their bodies. But they said in this that basically these high starch diets do alter the microbiota that's in the hindgut of the horse. And essentially, there's a two way communication system linking the gut and the brain. And it's commonly referred to as the gut brain axis. But in like as simple as possible, because it's such a complex and fascinating area to look into and if you're interested in nutrition definitely looking into how um the gut basically really does feed mental energy and how it helps with mental health even in humans and um, there are different hormones that are released by the gut and basically over 20 different hormones but several of which are neurotransmitters so Basically, if we're not feeding the gut what it needs for us to be healthy and to keep these um, bacteria, these microbiota um, flourishing, then we end up with a disruption of these neurotransmitters. And that is then what influences the behavior in people, in, you know, cats, dogs, horses. They did tests in mice and rats as well. But they did find that it does, you know, these high starch diets are associated with that increased behavioral reactivity in horses. So that's like what you're saying, Nancy, the, you know, the pacing and the pawing and that nervous energy. Yeah. And it's not like when in America, our racetracks um, have 900 to 1500 horses housed within access to that track. So it's not like where in the UK, there might be gallops and stables where horses walk kind of in parade, right, Kate, to get yeah. to the 
gallops. Well, here in this country, we have a racetrack and then all these stabling, you know, stalls are, you know, on the backside of these tracks. So a horse will, you know, gallop in the morning and then cool out on a horse walker um, or be hand walked by a groom and then return to the stall. So it's not like they're getting a whole heck, heck of a lot of turnout time. Mm-hmm. There might be a, uh, we call it a rolling pin. That's a sand fenced in area where you can turn a horse in there. It's small enough they won't get hurt, but large enough that they can find a nice place to roll in a sand pit and kind of, you know, readjust things and be able to roll better than they can in a 10 by 10 or 12 by 12 stall. So anyway, um, it's also, I thought it was interesting that they quoted a paper uh, within this paper that showed increased stress responses have been associated with changes in the gut uh, microbial populations and fistulated horses. Now, fistulated horses are where they put a cannula in the side of a horse, like in the cecum area, where it's like a window into the intestine. And they insert these, and a horse can live a normal lifespan with this access to the my, you know, microbiology of their intestines. So uh, it's usually got a nylon plug and you see this at universities mainly, but anyway, they can know this happens because they can take a sampling with these canulas and find out what the population is. And they also can do it with cows. And at where I went to school at University of Illinois, they had a cow that had a, um, you know, was fistulated and she had wonderful gut population in her rumen. And so they used her as a donor um, for probiotics. So they would grow, you know, she was a bit from a healthy herd, uh, very sterile conditions and, you know, allowed like really micromanagement um, where she wouldn't necessarily get salmonella or things like that. And they could reach in there and get the population, keep it heated to match her body temperature, and then um, give it to a, a sick cow that needed to repopulate the gut flora and fauna. So anyway, I thought that was the interesting part of this, that this is how they begin to study this is by putting these fistulas into these ponies and horses. Do you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this done, Nancy, but I learned about it when I was studying to be a vet nurse. And I have to say, I've never actually seen it done in practice, but we learned about um like when you need to basically build up that good, healthy bacteria in the gut, particularly in foals that have like chronic diarrhea, and mm-hmm. um, you can give them. So the the term that we use for it isn't so PC, um, but essentially like using a nicer word for it, a fecal shake. 
Now we used to use the S word instead of fecal. So the alliteration, <laughs> <laughs> the alliteration was a bit better, but um, a fecal shake. So you would take some feces from like a healthy horse and you would mix that up and stomach tube it into the foal. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, and I'm not sure if it's something that's still practiced a whole lot, but they were, even then they were saying like, you know, and that would have been probably like eight years ago, they were saying the importance of building up those good microflora and that bacteria in the gut to be able to have a healthy horse. Yeah, I I just was amazed that um, they had like 20 fecal samples in this study uh, because they, I think it was 10 Welsh ponies and they were like 18 months old. And um, the high fat and fiber diet, which would be high forage, had a total count of like 1,250,000 population of these, what we would call good bacteria. And the high sugar diet or starch and sugar diet, it was like 65,000, you know. So, and there was a standard deviation in there too. But I mean, that shows that not only humans should feed the garden within their intestines to grow good bacteria, but we should do it too for our horses. And we do that by doing trickle feeding, mainly forage, a forage based diet. And then also don't make changes too quickly because um, some of this this study showed that if you made even a little bit of a change too quickly, that good population or that fibrolytic bacteria that eats cellulose and hemulose, um, that depleted. And then that would bring about some colon disturbances in the horses so you know it's so true don't make any feeding changes or any management changes too quickly because that could upset that balance that you know is is there for a reason I think that's the thing like with all the good intentions in the world we might be buying you know a really expensive um, ration or pellet food for them and be putting a lot of effort into figuring out what to feed them, especially to fuel our athletic and performance horses. But in a lot of cases, this means that the forage diet is getting reduced and we are really substituting with these high starch feeds. And that's just where we're completely throwing them off kilter because as well, they found that basically where they increased the starch diets the frequency of like pace change was increased. So horses were like more reactive, you know, they were walking quicker. They were kind of um, more nervous energy essentially. And then they found that where they increased the high fiber diet, so more forage, the horses were actually spending more time doing like investigating activities. And I always think about this when you've got a dog that's nervous. If you have a dog that's nervous and you're out walking them, the best sign to see is that they've got their nose down and their tail up. So they're doing that investigating, they're smelling. They won't do that if they're nervous. Like if they're feeling their needs to be on the attack or 
you know, certainly horses as prey animals, they're not going to do that relaxed, natural, investigatory behavior that really comes from them being settled. Yeah. And, and I think that's they, according to this study, that was, um, during the passive human test, they really were more leery of that human than wanting to investigate the new feed tub that was out in the middle of the arena. So um, they did a novel test, a passive human test, and, you know, they were just looking for a relaxed horse at an 18 month old pony that would be inquisitive relaxed but these were very flighty the ones that were the high sugar starch diet so but anyway I think the one takeaway um, that kind of wraps this up is that just don't assume that you're uh, feeding correctly kind of do a calculation for what your total digestible energy is that you're feeding your horse and kind of make sure your diet is the foundation is your forage. And if it's not, you know, if hay is a rough crop to farm, I know firsthand, but there's plenty of bagged and um, produced forage products that you can go to if you seem to think your horse isn't getting enough or the quality just isn't what it should be. Definitely. And I think that's the thing, just try and stick with what is as natural in their feeding behaviors as possible. So they do need that forage time. And we need to make sure that we're kind of basically protecting that, you know, still giving them the opportunity to have that forage, even if we are expecting them to be at peak performance levels. Yeah, and I think a complete feed you know, accounts for that, but a horse needs to chew and to forage and to do those grazing behaviors, even when it's a performance horse, you're going to end up enhancing that performance by giving them the opportunity to uh, behave the way a horse was meant to behave. Exactly. So I think that's a good point to stop on this, don't you, Kate? Yeah, definitely. And just a thank you again to everyone who tunes in every week. Um, We've got a loyal following of listeners and we really appreciate that you guys like to listen to what we talk about each week. So I think it still amazes me and Nancy that that some people find this interesting. So we're glad because we certainly find it interesting and it's been a pleasure to do each week. Sounds good. And thank you for joining me on this because I don't think I would do this solo. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's been a good team effort. And thanks to all the listeners. And we'll see you next week. Talk to you next week.